And welcome back to the Hammer Time Podcast. We are here after taking last week off. I was in beautiful Mobile, Alabama and New Orleans, Louisiana at the Senior Bowl and then at Mardi Gras. It was a lot of fun. A lot of really, really good food was had. Bourbon Street was, I give it probably a 6 out of 9 or a 6 out of 10, whatever number you want to use. It's an interesting, interesting place. Uh, I might go back, but we'll see. Anyway... Thank you for listening. If you want to find more of these podcasts, you can subscribe on iTunes, or you can find us over at Playmaker Mentality, which is the website that I am currently writing for, or you can find us on SoundCloud. There are so many different ways to get involved and to listen to this podcast. I'm really excited about our guest tonight. He is a fantasy writer, and I'll let him talk in a little more depth about what he focuses on and where you can find him, but we have Rumford Johnny on the podcast tonight. Uh, Johnny, why don't you quickly give a rundown of where the people can find you after they listen to the show? Well, on Twitter, obviously, because I'm there, on there all the time and I interact with you a lot. So uh, at Rumford Johnny on Twitter and also uh, at Draft Day Consult. I'm a Draft Day consultant there. And I'm uh, basically a gun for hire to help you with your fantasy draft. So if you have a, a dynasty draft coming up, I'm your guy. Uh, basically, I do Skype calls like this, and I help people, you know, fix their, their awful dynasty teams and uh, hopefully turn them around. So it's kind of a fun thing. That's uh, something that's a brainchild of our buddy, uh, C.D. Carter. Uh, you can follow on Twitter at C.D. Carter 13. So. Really, really cool. And you do all the podcasts of your own too, right? I have done two podcasts. I, I will, I'm so not sorry to say because it was a sort of a one season deal. But uh, the Rummy and Ray podcast, which is really, uh, you know, went over really well with the community, was a, our shot at a DFS podcast with Ray Summerlin of Roto World. Uh, that was just a one season thing. We oh no closed the door on yeah closed the door on that one. Uh, you know, because Ray's going to be doing different stuff now with Roto World now that he's a full-time writer there. And I just really kind of wanted to get my feet wet and, and talking about DFS because I'm really, really interested in it now. Prior to that, I had done the, uh, the Two Mugs podcast with Ryan Forbes, who uh, does stuff for Fantasy Insiders now, and uh, uh, mostly PGA stuff. But he and I had done a, a fantasy football podcast, which covered everything, covered Dynasty, Redraft, uh, dabbled in some DFS as we were finishing up. And that went on for a couple of years. I think we were finishing up on our fourth year there uh, before we decided to, to call that quits. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how it is with, with, with podcasting. I think sometimes you can go a long way or maybe you get an idea for a new podcast and, and you transition to something else. So maybe there's some hope that we can do something uh, for draft day. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, talking to, to Denny Carter about that. And if that really – kicks off and I'll, I'll be podcasting again but recently I just did something for uh just bought for overtime Ireland uh, for our buddy uh, over there uh you know he's situated in Australia but he does uh, a podcast for Ireland it's on American football and I did a little bit of a Super Bowl preview there so I'll be kind of hounding other people's podcasts like yours Ethan and and doing that sort of stuff until we figure out you know where I'm going to land and, and hopefully do something again for the season so we'll see. That is another subject that very soon I definitely want to pursue overseas football, how people view it in different places. I've done some work on it from a Japanese perspective, but I know there's also Mexico. 
as you mentioned, Ireland, Australia. I mean, Sam Monson, PFF, he's British. How it changes the perspective of the game, I think, is really interesting. I also just want to caveat, if my throat sounds scratchy, I am a little bit sick, so I apologize for that. But we'll make it through. I don't think it'll be that bad, so I think we'll be fine. So let's begin to go into sports. It is Super Bowl week, and we got the Panthers, we got the Broncos. Overall, from what you've seen this year, do you think both teams deserve to be in the Super Bowl? Because I personally think that the Broncos might not deserve to be in the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, it's from, obviously from a little bit of a bias. A little bit of a biased perspective. That defense is really good, but yeah. Yeah, I, I don't... I both admittedly uh, Patriots fans, died in the yard Patriots fans. They're not um... supposed to know that, shh. <laughs> Supposed to keep that quiet. Yeah. You're supposed to be, yeah, supposed to be even skilled. Supposed to be um, unbiased. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, listen, I, I kind of agree with you. I think I think they, you know, it, it just, the Patriots really kind of, they sort of backed into the playoffs. They weren't really looking great. Uh, you know, they're sort of uneven all the way through. And it was a really close game. I think you can kind of say that it could have gone either way. Um, the defense for the, you know, the Broncos, the, you know, the pass rush was just unbelievable. Never really had a shot. I think that they started to adjust later in the game, but early on, it's like they never had a game plan to really kind of keep Brady clean in the pocket, and that really hurt. I think that's the kind of changed the sort of the the momentum a little bit early on. The second half, Pats came out. I thought the Pats looked better in the second half than they did in the first half, but ultimately, you know, it wasn't enough. And, and you know, I think when when you when you have two teams like the Carolina. Panthers and the Broncos facing each other, you need to have both sides of the football be as balanced and as strong for it to be a competitive game. And I just don't think they are. I think that the Broncos are going to be tested quite heavily. I don't think their running game is going to be very efficient in this matchup. And, you know, Payton needs to put this team basically on his back and has to score some points. And I don't know that he can do that. I don't know that he can put up three touchdowns, four touchdowns in this game. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm all in on, on Carolina, obviously, and it's not because of who I root for. I just think they're a much, much better balanced team. And, and, and funny enough, they're not the most talented technically because when you look at them on offense, you know, they have a lot of guys that are sort of wide receiver threes, scrub throwaway guys, um, you know, aside from some of the, the you know, the main components like, like Olsen and Cam, obviously, and, and, and Stewart. But most of the other guys are all ragtag guys that have been around the league and stuff. So if they had a higher quality player at those positions, I think it would be a route. But, you know, given that, it, it could be a little bit of a closer game. But I still think this is a game where the Panthers could, could easily win by a couple of touchdowns. I totally agree with most of what you said. And I'm going to give the Broncos credit. That defense played really well. I was surprised that they were able to out-scheme the Patriots because no one was getting open. I do think the Patriots shot themselves in the foot a little bit. They didn't use Brandon LaFell or Keyshawn Martin enough, which was surprising to me, (laughs) because that was how they helped to expand the field. They had to send one of those guys down as a decoy to force the safeties back, to force the cornerbacks play a little bit more off. And they never did that. Brandon LaFell had a really disappointing year. I still don't think he was ever completely healthy. I think he was playing through injury for most of the season, if not all of it. So I'm not going to begrudge him too much, but 
either way, there are some really questionable decisions. I would have gone for one of the field goals because an eight-point game is pretty much two possessions. I would not have thrown three wheel routes to James White. <laughs> I would have stopped after maybe two. <laughs> Just saying, the guy wasn't catching them. The Patriots missed Shane Vereen in this game probably more than any player that they've lost. He is so underrated, and really, they definitely felt that burden. It's a shame because I do think if Deion Lewis had played the entire season, I think this is the best team in football. I don't think it's particularly close, even with all the other injuries. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I when he was in the lineup, he just opened up the entire... Yeah, I mean, when he was in the lineup, he just opened up the entire offense, and forced defenses to have to account for him, and he was another game-breaker, a big play guy, and with him gone, it really just went downhill. Gronk, to me, in this game, asserted he is the best tight end in NFL history, even though he's only 26. I have not seen a tight end completely impose his will over the course of a game as much as Gronk did in that game. Uh, he, He was unguardable, and they were trying to throw three players on him to defend him, and he was still making plays. Uh, that touchdown was amazing, and the Broncos' defense is really, really good, and they were tripling him, they were quadrupling him, and he was still making catches. Brady, to his credit, played well at the end of the game. He was not good early on. Part of that's because of the offensive line. Part of that is because he doesn't quite have maybe the crazy pocket presence that he would have had with the healthy line. He right. took some sacks and turtled up a little bit and was a little bit tentative and quick to release on certain plays that I think if he had more confidence in his blockers, he wouldn't have done. Also, Von Miller, ob- absolute beast. Not even close. To me, he might have been the defensive MVP this year. I said Kawan Short last week, but on after watching Miller in the playoffs and rewatching some of his tape this year, he's just so good. And then the offensive side of the ball, Emmanuel Sanders might be one of the most underrated players in football. Uh, there was a debate about him earlier this year. I believe it was between two people who have been on this podcast before, and <laughs> Davis Maddock and Benjamin Albright, where Albright said that Denver people thought Emmanuel Sanders was better than Marius Thomas, and Matek disagreed. And for much of this year, Emmanuel Sanders has been better. And it hasn't been particularly close. Demarius still has size, he has some explosive ability, but he isn't as well suited to play with the quarterbacks that Denver currently has as opposed to Sanders, at least in my opinion. I'm still bitter the Patriots weren't able to secure Sanders when he was a free agent. Yeah. I'm, they I'm tried to get him. They tried to dangle up third-round pick, and they weren't able to receive him. And that really stinks, especially now, because if this Patriots offense had Emmanuel Sanders, that would be scary. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> should have, could have, would have. They missed out. But, I mean, you know, they, the, the Pats had, had enough weapons. I mean, they had enough to win that football game, so it's kind of hard to, to to play Monday morning quarterback about the whole thing, but you're right, I mean, they, if they had somebody like that, I think that's probably where they go again, they probably look at somebody in free agency again this year, I don't think the draft is necessarily uh, gonna, you know, 
basically where they're picking. I mean, I don't know who's going to be available. I mean, there are some players that I like, probably some players that you like as well, um, that they could probably grab in the second round. But losing that first-round pick in the first round is such a killer. I know they wouldn't be taking a wide receiver anyway. Um, but still, not having that pick just kind of changes their draft plan a lot, I think. I think there's a good chance they don't take a wide receiver. At all. I, I really think that with Keyshawn Martin signed to a contract, with Aaron Dobson having one more year, yep. and with LaFell being there, you already have Amendola and Edelman. Yep. We're going to move off the Patriots now, but it wouldn't shock <laughs> me if they don't take a wide receiver. Because the Patriots aren't in the Super Bowl, and the Broncos are, and all credit to them, they deserve to be there yes. to face off against the juggernaut Carolina Panthers. Now, before we get into the analysis of Carolina, I just have a public service announcement to all the Panther fans. Stop making parody songs about the Panthers. <laughs> I have seen three of the worst parody songs ever of just people singing about the Panthers, making up stupid rhymes about Cam, about generally Panthers. In all the videos I saw, there were people pretending to be Panthers. They were either snarling or they were crawling on their hands and knees. Just just stop. <laughs> Please stop. You are putting all the karma on Denver right now. All the karma is moving over to the Broncos' side of the field because God is looking down on you and saying, "I those people do not deserve a Super Bowl. Don't deserve it. They're embarrassing themselves on the Internet. Don't deserve a Super Bowl. That's my public service announcement to Panther fans. We're still making songs for whatever reason. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, that off my chest. The Panthers should win this game. <laughs> they are very, very, very good. Uh, Cam Newton is the MVP this year. I think it's pretty clear, at least to me. Do you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, he just. I mean, look at his numbers. The way he's played. I mean, he hasn't uh, made a lot of mistakes. Uh, he's played with a lot of confidence. We haven't seen him throw a lot of bad throws. I mean, even if, if you really wanted to micro, uh, put put everything under a microscope, like a lot of people will do with, with Cam Newton for certain things, uh, he's limited really the bad throws, like the, the questionable throws. He's only had, you know, a, a handful that I can re- recall. I mean, he's really played an efficient game. They've let him play his game, essentially. You know, they've gone back to letting Cam do his thing. He's been healthy, which is number one, which is great. Uh, staying healthy. A healthy Cam is a, is a dominant Cam Newton. Uh, when we saw him unhealthy last year, it was, it was a totally different situation. So um, so I think he absolutely is the MVP. I think um, he's going to be a much tougher out for the, for the Denver defense. I don't think they're going to blitz as much against Cam. I think uh, they, they probably know better than to do that. I think that's that's – it's a recipe for Cam rushing for 100 yards. Um, and I don't think that'll happen. I think they'll be a little bit more conservative. But I still think he can pick them apart. I, I really, the way he's playing with the confidence that he's playing with, I think he can pretty much have his way with them. So it'll be really fun to watch. To me, the way that Denver should play Cam, they're going to rush four, they're going to keep a spy, and they're going to play a lot of zone. Uh, that's at least what I would do because – while Cam does throw some really nice passes, and his precision is top-notch, yep. there are going to be chances for defensive backs to get their hands in there in some of those throws because he's going for fingertips. He's really trying to thread the needle. And something that Mike Shula, to me, has done really well this year, and I've complimented Mike Shula before, 
even though I know he's a bit of a controversial figure, I think he's a really good offensive coordinator. Credit to Dave Gettleman for keeping all of the staff and the coordinators and the scouts in-house when he came in and took over from Marty Herney. There was a great article in the Wall Street Journal. I think it was either yesterday or the day before uh, from when we're recording this. So it was this week, uh, week of the Super Bowl, where he talked about how he just wanted to let them do what they were doing. Because they were doing the right things. They were just getting unlucky, which is completely true. They were unlucky last year, and now they have a transcendent quarterback. To me, Cam Newton is at the level where Aaron Rodgers was in 20... What year was the year where they lost the 2011? Yeah. Aaron Rodgers, 2011. That's where he is to me right now. And the scary thing is he's doing this all without his best receiver from last year, Kelvin Benjamin, with guys like Ted Ginn, Philly Brown, Devin Funchess play major roles. And I think Funchess, if you want a fantasy sleeper next year, that guy's only going to get better because he's already pretty good, but he's only going to get better in my opinion. I'm a big Funchess believer. And then as you talk about the run game, Jonathan Stewart, the line which has done really well this year, Trey Turner is possibly a top five guard in the NFL. And then the defense, which is just so disruptive. Luke Keekley has really taken a step forward, and he's become one of the best linebackers in the league. you got Star Latulale, Kwan Short, the ends who are pretty dynamic, although they will be without Jared Allen, but I think it's still manufactures some pressure on Peyton. And the cornerbacks who are ball hawks, Josh Norman, uh, at safety you got Kirk Coleman. They just have a lot of players with noses for the football. Yeah. And to me, the Panthers actually don't match up amazingly with the Broncos, but I didn't think that with the Cardinals either, and then they destroyed them. I think this Panther team might just be really, really, really good. I think they would have beaten the Patriots that they played. I said that on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I think that they're going to win this as well. Now, getting a little bit deeper into the game, who do you think could be a sleeper player? Someone who, out of nowhere, makes a huge play, is poised (laughs) to succeed, and maybe even wins the Super Bowl for their team, maybe even pulls a Malcolm Butler. Who do you uh-huh. think could be that guy? Well, based on the fact that I, that we know Thomas Davis is going to play uh, hurt, okay, uh, seems to be, you know, you know, he had that break and he's going to be playing with it. I just don't know how long he'll play, and we, I think we're going to see a good dose of Shaq Thompson. So my sleeper pick is Shaq Thompson. I think the defense, it's going to be a defensive play, that's going to put things, uh, you know, that's going to shift the tide a little bit. So he's my sleeper play. He's going to get a, uh, a key turnover, and uh, it's going to put them in position to score. So, And he's going to, he's, he's going to be the guy that people aren't thinking of because they're all thinking of Keekly, like you and I are thinking of, uh, you know, Josh Norman when I'm thinking of those other guys. But I think Thompson's definitely somebody that could come in, and he's, we know that he's – uh, a supreme athlete could certainly get get some stuff done, and uh, and they were thinking about having him start for Davis too if Davis isn't full go. So there's still that probability that he could play more snaps than we think. So so I do think that he's he's a guy that could certainly make something happen. That's my uh, that's my play. So you stole my answer, but that's okay. I'm gonna make someone <laughs> else. No, that's a really really good answer. I mean, Shaq Thanks. Thompson. A player who has done really well this year. I mean, whenever he's got an opportunity, he's looked really good. Maybe he even gets some snaps at running back. 
Who knows? Maybe they decide to do something crazy. I'll look at the offensive side of the ball, and I'm going to go with Philly Brown, who's someone who I've been pretty low on for a lot of his career because he's pretty much he was an undirected free agent, always a step too slow, a step smaller than everyone else around him. But he is going to have some pretty favorable matchups in this game. I think that the Broncos are going to look to put Chris Harris on him, and I think that he sneakily could beat Chris Harris a couple of times. Uh, he has some good explosiveness down the field. He just seems to get open, and it would be really cool to see him make a big play to win the game. I also think that Jericho Cotchery, even as a Patriots fan, someone else who I have so much respect for, and I really, really hope he wins the Super Bowl because he was one of the most underrated receivers of this past generation, at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think that those are two guys I have my eye on. So we both sort of agree on who's going to win the Super Bowl, but what do you think the final score is going to be? 43-8 to eight or 23-20? to 28-17 is my call. I think uh, I think Cam does it both with his feet and through the air. I think your guy, Contrary, scores a touchdown. Uh, I think there's a defensive touchdown. So uh, I think this is an all-around, you know, good game for the for the entire Panther squad. Everybody gets a piece of the pie. So 28-17, I think Peyton's able to uh, score a couple of touchdowns and get a field goal. Uh, but they, in the end, he's going to end up coughing up the football in, in some crucial moments, and that's going to decide this game. I'm tempted to go big with a big win for Carolina, but I'm a little skeptical that maybe that Denver defense has something cooked up, something diabolical. So I'm going to go a little more conservative than I feel in my heart. I'm going to go 24-14 to 14 Carolina, just because okay. I do think that Denver defense deserves a lot of respect. Okay. And that's sort of where I stand there. We're going to transition from the sports portion to the society portion. Now, Johnny, you have a really interesting day job. You work with people with mental disabilities, which is something very close to me, and I, I think it's interesting that you chose that profession it's inspiring in a way too how did you decide to work in that industry really just kind of fell into it because i i I worked in hospitals uh, when i was younger and you know i i I was somebody that you know and just so everybody gets a little snapshot here of, of me growing up i mean i grew up portuguese and when you're in the Portuguese culture, you know, you, you have a job when you're young. You're a teenager. You, you, you do hard labor when you're 12, 13 years old. It just, it's, a, it's expected in the culture. Um, I know people that do asphalt. You know, the kids were 10 years old doing asphalt in people's driveways. You know, totally illegal, but it's with their, their parents so they can do it, you know. Uh, and... That's the kind of stuff I grew up with. So I always, you know, if I could get a job, I, I mean, I got a work permit to work early at 15 in the hospital and uh, worked in a kitchen um, at the uh, hospital in New Bedford. And I, like, you know, prepared like 500 meals for people at night and stuff and chopped up onions, did all that stuff. And then, you know, once another opportunity came available, I kind of worked in other areas of the hospital and ultimately ended up working in security. Uh, in my early twenties there 
and working also on part-time on psychiatric work. So I found that both of those things were sort of cohesive because I worked in the ER a lot in security and worked on, uh, you know, a lot on the, uh, the psych unit. And a lot of times in the ER, we end up getting a lot of people transitioning to psych. Um, and that's something I just kind of, you know, it just, it made sense to me. And I, and I've written about, and I think you, uh, you know, aware of this, I've written some stuff for bro Jackson and, uh, you know, on stuff about my brother who's bipolar. And, uh, so that it does, you know, some of that, you know, is personal for me because I mean, I've obviously he's, my brother's been hospitalized and I've dealt with him in the hospital. I mean, I've had to actually take care of him while I worked in the hospital. I've actually had to oversee his care, which is bizarre and another thing altogether. But other times he's been in other hospitals and, and, uh, and I've had to, you know, saw him in that state and I've seen other people in that state as well, you know, bipolar mania and so forth. And I just sort of become a little bit more understanding about that over the years. I think people a lot of times don't get it. You know, they don't understand how somebody can cycle up and down through, through mania and depression, but it's very, very common in bipolar disorder. And, uh, so it's just something that just made sense to me. And I just sort of had a heart for it. I, I wanted to work with, with kids. So I ended up working with kids in a transition unit, uh, a state hospital, uh, I ended up working, uh, with kids in a, in a lockup as well. Kids going from court to long-term care or, or long-term lockup for psychiatric uh, evaluation. So I've done a lot of that stuff as well. And I learned a lot. I, I picked up skills, you know, doing that sort of thing. And now my job is mainly just overseeing group homes where there are mixed population of people with developmental disabilities, kids with impulse control disorders, um, all experimental stuff that people, you know, the state is doing now. They're trying to keep a lot of different kids together to sort of help them help each other. Um, and it's it's worked out really well so far. So, and I love it. It's, a, it's an interesting job. It's something I've just slowly worked my way up uh, the latter uh, last 15 or so years in Rhode Island uh, to be able to kind of do this stuff. So, um, and that's really it. I mean, anytime there was an opportunity available for me to, to move up, I, I took it. You know, I said, don't don't hire two people to do that. Just hire me, and I'll do both jobs. And I always I was always willing to do that. And it just paid off over time. I, I just you know kind of that uh, get get there early in the morning, you know, before everybody else. Kind of do what you have to do. Stay there a little bit later at night. And do your job and, and, and do, you know, hard work and, and it'll pay off o- over time and, and it has for me. So I'm, I'm very, very fortunate in that because, you know, I'm not, Ethan, I'm not somebody that, you know, I, I've had college courses. I'm not, I don't have a degree. I started out just kind of working my way up through jobs, uh, getting better at each job, learning skills from each job, taking those skills, interviewing well in, in jobs and saying, this is what I've learned and I want to apply this to this job and, People gave me shots at doing that, and I proved myself at each step. So I'm very, very, very lucky in that sense that people have given me opportunities over the years. First of all, there's so much to say. I definitely recommend if people haven't read your work at Bro Jackson, they do. There's some really moving work over there about your brother. I think there's one about your uncle who had AIDS. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that was also really, really good. So I definitely recommend you read it. They're really heartfelt pieces. And I think that your point about not having to go to college is very, very valid. I know that 
it's not for everyone. And while I definitely see the value of having that experience, getting that paper, uh, there's a lot of other routes to end up figuring out what you're good at and moving up within the industry or whatever you want to do that you're not going to learn in college. Absolutely. So I totally agree with that. So growing up, you mentioned your brother. Was there any instances or were there any instances that taught you the importance of empathy to those who might not be in the same mental state that you are? Well, not growing up necessarily, because I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I, and I'll, this goes back to the story without taking too much away from the story, because I do hope that people go to Bro Jackson and read this uh, after after they listen to the podcast. My my brother and I both suffered uh, sexual abuse as kids uh, from an uncle, and it it changed sort of the way I see the world. Uh, made me very introverted and made me very, very shy, painfully shy as a kid. Also made me very aggressive uh, when I was challenged as a kid. And I think that kind of led, led me to boxing, uh, where uh, where my brother, it led him to drugs and led him to, to bad behavior and other things that could have been trouble as a kid. You know, I took that, that sort of angry inside internalized stuff, channeled that to boxing, football and, and was able to sort of physically weightlifting everything was able to sort of you know not get into those things and I was lucky that it sort of bypassed me uh, whereas he you know he, he got into a lot of trouble he got he, he got uh, arrested a lot as a kid uh, you know a lot of drug related stuff got married early had a child early had a second child very early went through his first um, experience of meeting in his early 20s and then several, every couple of years or so, would have a, a severe bout of mania, which would last sometimes several weeks. Uh, we'd end up in the hospital and, and uh, you know, dehydrated and, you know, on all kinds of hallucinogenics and everything else. So um, that was something we just kind of got used to after the first two episodes. So that taught me later on in life in my 20s. But prior to that, I didn't really know much of it. I was sort of dealing with... His, um, all this stuff coming back because this is also something too, Ethan, that I had to deal with because I had repressed all this stuff. My brother and I both went through the same stuff, but I had repressed a lot of it and I didn't think about it and talk about it. So when he, when it all sort of came to the surface to him, which by the way, Ethan, not to give too much away, I, I have in my brain right now this story that I want to tell the other side of this story about confronting the person that did this to me. Um, and I will tell that, and that will be on Bro Jackson at some point, even though those... And I will say this, Bro Jackson, by the way, fucking pay me to do your goddamn articles. <laughs> I, I get more hits than most people do. You know that's true. So I'm telling the editors right now, just fucking pay, pay me. Pay the man. Pay the and man. I, and I'll write a badass article for you. Um, but anyway, um, it's it's something that it, I've, I've been thinking about for a while and I wanted to talk about because it's, it's going from... My brother having his episodes to, to really a really sad moment in our lives um, that changed him and and but also you know there was there was a time in between there also where some other things happened and I wanted to kind of talk about that because I left it sort of a blank slate with me so sort of me looking on the outside even though I was really I went through the same shit that he went through 
And ultimately, it, it just framed me differently than it framed him, you know? And I think that I'm lucky. He hasn't been so lucky. You know, he's older than me. He's, uh, you know, he's a brilliant, brilliant electrician. He, you know, he's he, been an electrician for several years. And, you know, he's, he's done, he's wired, like, businesses that you probably walk into every day. Like, I mean, giant, like, big box stores. He's done complete wiring for, like, BJ's and Sam's Club and stuff like that. He's, you know, he's brilliant. He knows what he's doing. He's, he's been at it for a long time. But, um a few years back he got hurt and and uh, fell off a scaffold and shattered his spine mm-hmm. and and going through all of the the stuff that he was going through in mania just made it worse because doctors wanted to put him on pain pills and you know he couldn't because of all the other stuff that he had to take for for this bipolar disorder so it, it, he went through a ton and the story's not even told on him yet because there's so much more to talk, talk about but his life is not what he had expected to be in his Unfortunate. So I'm always, I've always been there for him. In this past year, I've, um, and I, t- I think I, t- I touched on this on Twitter a little bit because I, and I don't like to get into it too deeply. But in this format on your podcast, I'm obviously a little bit more of an open book today. But um, you know, he, he went through some bad stuff. He had um, basically most recently had had a girlfriend that was troubled like him, who was a recovered addict, who was playing sort of this game and, and pretending that she was clean and she was ultimately taking drugs uh, behind his back. And she had a, a daughter who was, um, who had a disability, who's, uh, you know, has, has some special needs. And he had basically taken care of her, you know, while his girlfriend was sort of out and about doing stuff. And, and ultimately she had gotten arrested for possession and went to jail and he ended up having to take care of her. Uh, she had, gotten out of jail, come home, and then said, I'm going to take her with me. He said, you're, no, you're in no you know, shape to take her anywhere. So she basically got on the phone and called the cops and said he did this and that and tried to keep her from leaving and made up all this stuff because she knew my brother had a history. And they came and they arrested the man because, you know, he's a male and she's a woman and she's a small child. And I know that's not always the case. I know sometimes it's legitimately, you know, whenever somebody's a woman says – this, 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 this happens, you know, believe the woman. Uh, in this case, it was completely, you know, one of those things where she was playing that, you know, functional drug addict. Like, no, no, he did this and that. And he ended up going to jail and, um, you know, basically just got out recently. And I've been helping him pay his lawyer fees uh, for, for like the last, you know, year or so. So, you know, it's been tough. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that you, you do when you're in this situation with, with your family. You just kind of do your, your, your part, even though, you know, we've been both down different paths. Um, I've been very fortunate for me, even though I can't afford to pay his local bills, I still pay him because, you know, I know that I got lucky. I know I, I basically got through that and came out on the other side, you know, and he's still fighting that now. And uh, so I did that. And I, you know, it's tough. And, and our relationship is weird because, you know, he, he's, res- you know, there were times when we were younger, he was resentful of me because I came out okay. He didn't. And, uh, but as we've gotten older and become adults and rational and everything else, you know, he understands and he's, un- you know, glad that I'm helping him and, and so forth and so on. So it's, I mean, it's, I, I could write 
10 articles for, for Bro Jackson on this, and I just might turn this into a book. Who the hell knows? Yeah, I was going to say this sounds like a book. <laughs> it really could be because it's really – there's a lot of shit in it that people wouldn't believe, but it's, it's, it's my life, you know, and it's probably why I'm not perfect. It's probably why I block more people than I should on Twitter, Ethan, but um, probably because I have a low tolerance. Yeah, you blocked me for some reason, and – I don't, I don't think he knew until you tried to DM me, and you were like, oh, why did I block you? I don't remember why that. But sometimes I just do it out of, like, I get an itchy block finger, but I don't remember why I blocked you, but you're the least blockable person. Or, or, tw- or Twitter did it automatically. Twitter is no, no, evil no, no, that no. way. No, I probably did. I just probably don't even remember doing it. But, um, but whatever. whatever. So needless to say, um, I don't block you now because you're a good guy. And, yeah. I, and, I, and it's interesting. I And I will say this point blank. I... For a while, I didn't know about you as a person. Well, like I knew you as a draft nick, and then it was interesting to sort of hear about you as a person because like, you sort of quietly sort of talked about your personal life. And, yeah, you know, and I, 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 I you know, I always want to be supportive of my friends who I know that you know when you talk about your personal life, you're not always going to get a response that people, you know, most of the time you'll get good people who are being kind to you and, and human to you about your, your your personal life. But there are other times people are going to just be assholes and say stupid shit to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it, like, and I notice this with a lot of people in draft Twitter particularly, and I, and I don't want to detract too much because what you just said was really, really moving, and I don't want to get into, like, a soliloquy of, my first world problems, which are, like, not that big of a deal, uh, so I'll no, keep please, it really, no, really no, brief, but, no, I think that a lot of, to keep it short, a lot of people decided that we all have a lot of shit going on, and we should be able to talk about that. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I just, uh, to, get, to get back to, to, to that, and I, don't, I didn't know if you, you wanted to talk about it or not, but um, that's kind of way the way it sort of made me feel about um, you know, people who were homosexual. I, I grew up with an uncle, and I, this is another story I, I wrote about, and this is one that I know you referred to earlier, um, who was really, you know, for me, was somebody that was always... Uh, now, let, let, let's, to put this in perspective, Ethan, one of my uncles molested me and my brother, mm-hmm. okay? And we, he's, in my eyes, is dead to me, and he's dead to my brother and everybody else in my family. Um... But my other uncle, who was really, truly one of my mentors in life because he taught me about music and art uh, and fashion, <laughs> and uh, it, it actually let me close when I was a kid. He was, he was tall and skinny, and he used to let me let, give me his old jackets from, like, you remember the Filings Basement in Boston? My grandmother loves that filing basement. <laughs> like, she would go there, she would take all the clothes. I mean, I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so he would get suits there for nothing. Like, cause they, he'd, like, he'd stash them on, the, like, the back shelf, and, like, he'd get these suits, and he'd get them for, like, 25, 30 bucks, these beautiful, like, suits, and have them tailored. And then when I get old enough and tall enough, he'd say, here you go, and he'd get it dry cleaned and have it tailored for me and everything. So I'd have these pimp suits when I was like 16. Ridiculous. So uh, so he's a huge mentor in my life and he unfortunately, his life was very, very quiet. Like he kept it, his personal life quiet. Uh, we knew that he had, you know, a, a friend that we saw all the time. 
um, and I wrote about it in the story. And uh, he was around a lot, and, and we loved him. He was, he was a great part of the family, and, and uh, you know, he was just somebody that was always, to me, you know, embraced life. He enjoyed life. He loved to, to go out to eat. He loved to go to concerts. He, you know, he just, he loved life, and he, he, made, he kind of inspired that in me and made me want to do things and try new things and open my mind to things. Now, when he passed away, I knew that he was gay. My family did not. Uh, some of my family did not because he kept that quiet. And when he died, he was in a Unitarian church. The pastor went up and talked about trying times in the gay community. This was really, you know, this was at the height. This was in the, the 80s, height. right? This is late 80s, early 90s. This is like this was right like, after Reagan. Exactly. People were terrified. They did, nobody wanted to like, oh, don't, don't touch that bloody Band-Aid. No, everybody was freaking out. Um, and, you know, it was people were uninformed. They weren't educated at that point yet. Well, at least not completely. And it's much different now. But then it was strange. So they see a bunch of elderly aunts sitting up front and then hear the pastor talk about trying times in the gay community and have their jaws drop. Like, what are they talking about? That must have been a moment for them. It was both for me to watch them freak out, but it was the most beautiful ceremony. They played music, you know, the ceremony, which I had never seen. Like, other than old, tired Catholic hymns. I'm not talking about songs that he loved, you know, like Freddie Mercury and stuff like that. Like, you played whatever, like, whatever the hell you liked, you know? And then basically went out. At the end of it, everybody kind of released a balloon, which basically had a little piece of paper on it. You could write a note on the balloon. Like, you know, hey, because he knew there would be a lot of kids there. And the kids didn't understand, like, where he was. So let's write him a note. And, you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to get emotional that, talking about it. That must be, like, surreal, uh, though, from... I was, I was 19, and, and there were kids there that were, like, 8 or 9 years old that had no idea. I'm just thinking from his perspective, though. So he was the one who decided he knew, that. He knew he was going to die. That he must be, like, quite... Yeah. That's, like totally awe-inspiring to me, like, for him to have that foresight and to be able to plan your own funeral. He didn't like... want it to be sad. He, he, he wanted it to be... That's why he had music there, because he knew it was going to be in church, because he knew that they had, he had to have the church for part of the family. He didn't want it to be the church, so he had it in the Unitarian Church because he knew that they were welcoming to the gay community. And he, and, and he had this ceremony put in place that was sort of like uplifting and not sad and down you know they make people feel depressed about him not being there and then again writing the little note and all that was like a nice way to say hey that's where he is you know like to explain it to kids you know and they're releasing a balloon and it's like it was really you know for me it, it made me feel like wonderful closure even though it was sad that he was gone he's only 35 mm -hmm. um, very very sad but um you know, it's that changed me as a person. Like I always, you know, I, I mean, I always had a, a, a progressive view, uh, you know, gay and lesbian issues. But it just made me much more, you know, even more progressive about it. And I got involved more in activism, um, helping kids out, and uh, and done stuff like that. Especially with even with all the work that I've done, you know, I always led groups. Like, if we had groups in, in some of the group homes and stuff like that, or in, in the hospitals, I always led the, 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 you know, lesbian, gay and lesbian discussion groups. Always try to help those kids. You know, and I always lead by saying, I'm not, I'm not gay. 
but I understand, you know, and I talk about it, and, you know, and I explain about my uncle, and I always offered up that, um, you know, uh, you know, basically that example, like, you know, how, how he led his life, and how he was proud, but, you know, he still lived in a, he still lived in a world where he felt like he couldn't be completely open, and I understand that it's tough, and, you know, did that sort of thing, and it always made me feel, you know, good, that I was kind of, help sort of in, in a way channeling through him helping these kids out so I mean I always always appreciated that and I still do stuff like that so um, you know it's and I don't know it's not to get too long winded about it but that's something that's always near and dear to me so yeah I mean it's daunting and I don't think that I totally can appreciate what it was like I have two little windows into it uh, one my uncle is gay and he's in his 50s, and I basically, he got really lucky. He moved to California, to San Francisco, uh, to go to, I don't even know where he was going. He might have gone to be a professor or do something involving academia, and he met someone when he was there, and they stayed monogamous in the 80s. And that's pretty much, I think, the only reason why he didn't get AIDS. Right. Which, you know, I feel very lucky because he's my favorite uncle, so. Sorry for any other uncles who are listening. I only have one other <laughs> uncle. Well, actually, it's not true. I have two uncles, one who is severely developmentally disabled and another one, so, and this one. So I, I, I feel very lucky about that. And the other thing is I recently went to a synagogue um, for a couple of services, but the synagogue is known to be a very LGBT-friendly synagogue, and it was founded during the AIDS crisis and the most daunting thing to me, and I grew up in Judaism for a long time, um, I so I've definitely been in my share of synagogues. I have not seen so many people who go there alone uh, in any synagogue that I've ever been to. The families there, there were maybe, it was a pretty big crowd. Like, there were probably around 100 people, which isn't a small number. And I would say, considering that it was in the middle of Manhattan, and like Chelsea, lower Manhattan, there were probably about 10 families and 30 people who were mourning someone who they had lost, um, or just remembering their loss. And it was really pretty... Stirring. I talked to my dad about it after the service because my dad's a rabbi, so that's something that has always really fascinated me. And just just about like how important this place must have been in the 1980s because of all of the death that was happening in that community oh, and, God, yeah. and and what and and why there are so many why there seems to be a disproportionate amount of people who they're remembering each week. Uh, when they do Yortzite, which for those who don't know, it's the Jewish memorial, Morris Kaddish. Uh, it's, it's basically how you remember the dead. You remember the anniversary when they died. Right. Um, and there were about, the, the synagogue again is like 30 years old, so considering that it probably averaged about 100, 150 people, uh, you might have like 10 people, 15 people in its history. It had like 40 people a week who had passed away. Wow. who were being remembered by somebody or not being remembered. And it was really, really daunting to think about what it must have been to live in that time 
in that station of life. And it just, uh, it definitely helps to count your blessings. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, we've definitely gone on for a while, uh, to places <laughs> where I didn't think we were going to go, but that's totally fine, uh, because this is a open forum. We talk about all sorts of things. I did want to touch on one more thing before I went to the final, more lighthearted portion. Okay. Because something that I've seen a lot of people use that really, it, it pisses me off a lot. And I mentioned that I have an uncle who is severely developmentally disabled. Uh, he's 50 and he lives in a group home. I think his job right now is he, he occasionally counts things on shelves. I don't even know if he does it like all the time. I think it's like a, it's a group work type thing. Uh, his vocabulary is probably 40 words. Um, I, I don't think, and he can't take care of himself, of course. Right. Um, my dad's brother. And one thing that really, I don't think people realize how bad it is when you say the R word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wanted you to maybe speak from your experience when you're working with these kids. Uh, have they come to you with reactions to that word? And what's your reaction when you hear people use that word? <clears throat> Well, yes, they have. You know, we, we hear it a lot. And we hear, you, you'd be surprised how many times we hear it when we're out in a group with the kids. Like if we take the kids bowling or something or we take them to the store or whatever, you know, to buy clothes. You know, it, it, it's it, it happens all the time. Somebody will, a kid will say something, a teenager will say something. You know, because kids are just programmed to be assholes anyway, teenagers. So they're, you know, they're going to say that and they don't care. <laughs> Uh, and it sucks, you know, because you know that that child is, is either, you know, succumbing to some weird peer pressure or they just haven't been taught by their parents to not say this. Now, I think we live in a culture now where we've we've made it okay to talk about it. Like, people have made it sort of, in their own minds, made it okay to say the word. You know, it's, it gets sort of, it's sort of a suffix, you know, at the end of a word, um... You know, people will say, I'm so, I'm so socially retarded or I'm a fucked hard or whatever. I mean, they add something to that and they, and that makes it okay because they're not really saying the word, word retarded or, or, or even if they say it, it's, it's, it doesn't have any meaning because it gets passed along among kids so much. It, it, it doesn't hurt because they say it so often. I'm just trying to say that one person cannot completely think for themselves, the person who has mental retardation. They are vulnerable, emotionally open people who get hurt, okay, because of the way they are, because they cannot completely think for themselves. They can't completely do everything for themselves. So they are vulnerable. They're like they are like, like small children, I mean, mentally. And that's the thing, is that that's the difference. That's the whole difference. So when you make fun of somebody that completely cannot defend themselves, okay, they cannot intellectually defend themselves, you're a fucking asshole. Don't do that. You, you, there are, there's so many different words in the English language that you can use. You don't have to use it. We've become so conditionally lazy to use these handful of words. And you know what? Social media sucks too, Ethan, because we get, we get so caught up in using the same crap words all the time because we're so goddamn lazy because it's culturally like of the time that we just nobody's interesting anymore because we just say the same fucking 10 words it's like try to 
be interesting. Use use some different vocabulary to explain yourself because really you sound more intelligent than if you use that same art. If you use the R word, it's just it's hurtful because I've heard people, I've heard a kid say it while other kids, you know, I see I see a mom pushing a disabled daughter in a wheelchair. It's like oh yes, and I hear you hear a kid say you're so retarded, you know, and it's like they're right next to you. Are you that stupid? It's like you know, it's just. It's 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 mind numbing to see that and that people still do it, but you know that they're not really being taught. You know, like I, have you ever have you sat down with a with a parent to tell you not to do that about somebody? I mean, if you now because of your yeah. exposure, because you have an uncle, you you were told you were told you that was brought to you early on. But there are kids who just who don't know or aren't exposed to somebody with with a disability early on. That they act strange, and then they say, and then the, the parents just shush them. Don't say that. Don't say that. Shh. They don't explain to them what's wrong with the person, or they don't even go up to the. You know, like I, I this, I'll give you a great example. Okay, and I know we're going long here, but screw it. You know what? This podcast it's, is going four hours. We're going four hours. Dude, long. it's fucking interesting. Fuck you. It's good. Okay. <laughs> um, I I saw somebody say to somebody one time. There was, a, there was a, a, a kid who had uh, cerebral palsy and uh, autism. He was walking in a store uh, with his mother, and he's making some noises. And a little boy, a little boy was walking with his mother, put well in a grocery cart, I guess, saying something. And he was probably, you know, six, seven years old. He's holding on to the cart, and he was the the person, uh, gentleman with CP, was kind of. Making these vocal outbursts, you know, like just making sounds because he was nonverbal. And so the the woman came up to him. She's like smiled very nicely, but then she whispered over to the the, the mother of the young man who had cerebral palsy. And she said, "Could you explain to my son, um, your about your son because he's asking me questions and I don't feel like I'm qualified to to answer that, and he wants to know." And I just thought it was like the most like wow. It's like it just blew my mind. Like I, I'm just, I'm just like watching it from afar, and she like went on to tell, yes, yes, so palsy and this and that, and his name is David, and, and then she, she introduced him. She said, you can shake his hand. He'll shake your hand. He like shaked his hand, but it was like the little boy is like now is not afraid of this kid who is making these sounds because he doesn't understand. Now he understands, and even at a young age, maybe he doesn't fully understand, but at least he understands a little bit. I thought that was so like refreshing to see that. I know a lot of people would say, "Well, that's so weird. Why would that mother do that? Why would she ask?" No, it's really good because she's talking and she's like being open and letting her son know, "Don't be afraid of people who are different than you." Thank you so much uh, for the society portion. Slightly more lighthearted now. We are running long, but there's a lot of good stuff to talk about in the stuff part. And what I have written on my outline for you in capital letters, is beer. Okay. Because you like to drink. I like to drink. and I'll, I'll tell you, I, I did a podcast called Two Months Fantasy Football where we had a beer of the month and we talked about beer. <clears throat> and then about, I don't know, about a year and a half ago, Ethan, I found out I was allergic to beer. <laughs> Wait, you're... No, that's so sad. It, it totally Oh, is. that's awful. But it, I actually, actually kind of saved my life a little because I was I was drinking beer too much. I was drinking too much beer, number one. Um, and it was making me fat. Is it, do you have celiac? 
Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it not maybe not as severe as some people have it, but I, I mean, I have a, an abject allergy to, to yeast and, um, you know, and I, I just, you know, basically it would make me sick. And I, I had to withdraw from it and try it to put it back in my diet to see how I react. And I reacted violently, like it made me sick, like really bad. And I just said, that's it. So no more beer. So I told my wife, so now it's like, literally, I, while I'm taping this podcast with you, I'm having, having a little bit of Evan Williams bourbon with some lemonade right now, which is delicious, by the way. I, I mean, like, hard alcohol is better anyway. I yeah, just it is. thought I was about beer. I do love wine, dude. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm Portuguese anyway, so it's like I, I grew up with wine. Like, when I say I grew up with wine, we had little glasses of wine at the dinner table when we were six years old. So that's that's Portuguese, dude. That's like old school. So you know, it's not a big deal. So, I, but I love I love wine and uh, I love hard liquor and bourbon and you know and mix. And I, and I love to go to like places where they make really good mixed drinks and stuff like that. So oh, totally. I will say my just to get back to beer for a second. The beer that I am the biggest fan of right now, or the kind of beer, is I am in love with milk stouts. Oh, I do like milk. They milk. are. So delicious. Now, what's your favorite one? I, well, I got into it because of Mother's Milk. Mother's Milk is really good. When we were in Mobile, though, I had this other one. I think it was called Yeti. Okay. And that was really good. So, and apparently it was like uh, a southern milk stout that's only served in like 50 bars in the south. It was really small, uh, which was kind of cool. So I really like that. I mean... Have you ever tried uh, Founders Breakfast though? I didn't love it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I like Left Hand. It's pretty good. Yep. I'm not a fan of, like, Guinness. I don't like traditional stout. I only like it. It has, like, that slight creamy sm- milkiness. Right. Uh, so, I like Belgians otherwise and, like, like Hogarden, Weinstefan, like, those kind of things. Yep, me too. Uh, the best beer I've ever had was in San Diego in this... Little restaurant called the Public House. I recommend it. They have amazing burgers, and they had a beer there called the Horny Devil, which okay. was a Belgian beer, and it had 11.5 percent alcohol by volume, and yep. it went down like water. And it was the tastiest thing I've ever had. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I mean, listen. I will say this. I mean, I, I really loved it. Like, I lived, lived. It. I, I went to places. I, I, I toured. You know, breweries. I went to. Vermont to, to, to sip Hetty Topper right from the cask, which is like, if I say Hetty Topper, anybody listening to this, you know what the fuck I'm talking about. It's like the shit. It's like, it's it's right up there. It's a Hall of Fame beer, okay? And they only they only sell it in Vermont now. You can't get it anywhere else. So, um, it's just one of those one of those things. I, I always love trying new beers, and, and it just sucks that I can't drink it, but I mean, I, I could drink a tiny bit of it and sip it, you know, try a flight maybe, but other than that, it's it's gonna it's gonna ruin me for good. So. so, what was your favorite beer? What was my favorite? Oh, man, I, it, you know, I there's so many. I loved Teddy Topper when I tried it, like at the actual uh, brewery. Actually, it was a it was a brew like uh, lunch spot in, in Vermont, and uh, I think Shelburne, I think, and um, they that place burned down, and they they just started remaking. Um, Hetty Topper, just to, in cans there, and it's one of my favorites, but I think one of my, like, favorite ones that always, my go-to ones that I liked was, um, 
Sierra Nevada Ruthless Rye. Now it's hmm. not for not for everybody. It is uh, heavy, heavy on the rye, but it's I love it. It's got like tons and tons of flavor. Man. It's like a really flavorful beer. It's only out part of the year. It's a seasonal, um, and it's a, it's a California beer. It's a great beer. Um, awesome, awesome. Ruthless Rye. It's like one that I when I first tried it, like I tried a six. I immediately went back to the store and asked for a cold case, and I like to shove it in my my fridge, and I was like happy as a pig for, um, you know, for like a week until <laughs> so it's gone. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's one that's one of my favorites. So if you can get it, I mean, it, again, not for everybody. It might not be for you because I mean, you like the darker stuff, like milk stouts. It's, yeah. it's this is more the, the the real earthy, like it's got that bite to it. You know, you definitely feel it, and. Uh, it's it's good it's good stuff. I love it though. It's super flavorful beer. So to end this all off, we're gonna talk about the state where you're from, the state where I lived for five years. I want to say pretty much given all the time I spent there, uh, Rhode Island, because it is a great state, an underrated state, the smallest state but the most powerful state. And yeah, I mean, tell people why they should visit Rhode Island. It's just the best. Well, you're obviously right. It is an awesome state. Um, the reason it's great, well, there's a lot of bad things about it. Let's, let's start with that first. <laughs> well, all right. There, there are a few Buddy Sienzi just died, so that's the... Uh... Well, he's... Yeah, so he can't ruin us anymore, Don. Yeah. Actually, he, was very, he was very good for the state. He was just very corrupt. He, he, he was, like, he was, threatened he was, to kill a guy. Yeah, he was a bad man. Bad, bad guy. But he was good for infrastructure for a long time. He, he actually did help grow the state. Uh, but he was a very corrupt person, mostly. But that's that's the old part of you know Rhode Island, the corrupt, the mafia, you know, the, you know, what I'm talking about the, the foothold that they had there. And, and but the the beauty of of Rhode Island is that it is home to many progressive universities, uh, mm-hmm. Brown being one of them, um, and also Johnson and Wales, which is great because it's one of the the foremost culinary schools in America, or maybe even in the world, and the Graduates tend to end up getting jobs here in Rhode Island, staying here because they love it so much, and they end up opening up restaurants. So we get some of the best culinary young minds who end up planting roots here. So per capita, Rhode Island's got one of the most uh, – basically, I mean, you can't walk you know, three, oh, a block and a half without finding a restaurant. It's like there's so many different restaurants, ethnic restaurants, French restaurants, gastropubs. It's like – Seafood, whatever you want in Rhode Island. You Best burger city in the country. Really, I mean, it's it's incredible. And Down City, Down City is incredible now. The downtown area in Providence is really one of my favorite things to do. You just park someplace uh, for a couple hours, and you can walk and hit different bars. Go to the Eddie for a drink. You know, go to different places for oysters. Get a steak. You know, at, at uh, uh, Pot of Faro, man, which is a great old school. French restaurant. So you can do so much. You can go see a show. There's a bunch of theaters down there. There's little black box theaters. You can go see an improv show like Improv Jones. And there's just so much stuff. I mean, I sound like I'm doing an ad, but there's just so much shit to do. I mean, you can't be bored. We're not in Rhode Providence especially. Uh, you go to Newport, there's so much to do. Um, and, and you're by the water. It just you, you have so much to do. If you love the ocean, you have no excuse. You have a ton of places to go. If you love good food, if you've got a ton of things to do, if you love, you know, 
music and art. You know, they got a lot of great musical venues there. Lupo's and the Met are incredible. Um, it's just a lot. Of, there's a lot to do, and I love it here. I mean, I just, I, I've, I've been here for now going on 17 years, and I just feel like, you know, I'm, this is where I, I should have been all along. Yeah, I might move back. I've really, really thought about it because it is – well, I'm going to talk about the rest of Rhode Island before I talk about Providence. Like, <laughs> I – well, I worked in Providence, but I was able to travel all over the state as part of my job uh, when I was out there. And, I mean, Barrington is so cool. Like, they have, like, all these really, really nice restaurants. They have a little bit of beach as well, and it's just really, really chill there. You have, like – if you go south um, – you have Aquidneck Island, which has a bunch of stuff on it. Uh, again, just like, it's all, like, in the summer, Rhode Island is pretty much a beach. Oh, and yeah, you can go pretty much anywhere there. and just be near the ocean. Westerly, uh, Kingston, I remember going to URI for a concert there. That was awesome. Um, I remember going to India Point Park in Providence yeah. uh, for 4th of July, which was just friggin' amazing. Did you, did you ever go to the, uh, the free... WBRU well, I worked there, so yes, I actually <laughs> ran them. Uh, no, we yeah, we we ran all of those concerts, and I remember uh, we brought Passion Pit there, Group Love, uh, Walk the Moon. This was in 2012 before they were mainstream. Yeah, Gur, um, uh, just everyone pretty much there. For Snoop was there, we brought him. Kendrick was there. Uh, A-Track was there, just, Providence is amazing, it's like, it's a tiny city, but everything is really close, like, you could walk to City Hall in about 10 minutes, exactly. from where it lived, so, and then, on the other hand, you could walk to pretty much any bar in the city, so, it was just a great place, I mean, I recommend checking out Providence, go to the restaurants there, go to Harry's, get the yeah. burgers at Harry's, Harry's really good, if you're really hungover in the morning, go to Louie's. Hey, you have a relative at Louie's, right? Brother-in-law works at Louie's. Yeah, Louie's is the bomb. I love Louie's. Um, it's a restaurant that was actually featured on Guy Fieri's show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. That's in right. case you didn't know. Uh, but it's a really, really great place. If you want a fancy night out, I recommend going to Brandon Spikes' favorite restaurant, by the way, Gracie's. Uh, Gracie's, is uh, Gracie's, they have a tasting menu that's just like yeah. the bomb. Um, Actually, if you are a fan of 27 Dresses, Mill River Tavern was the inspiration for the restaurant in that movie. Check, check you out. For this Fun movie. fact, I know my Providence trivia. I was a tour guide. Oh, nice. Yeah, I know my trivia. Um, By the way, to, 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 I know you're going on a tangent here, but yeah. the original chef at Gracie's when it was on the hill, uh, Champ Spidell, who's a good friend of mine, who end up opening up a place called Persimmon in Bristol, which is a great place. He's now moving over to the old Rue de l'Espoir. Oh. Home Street. And Rue de l'Espoir uh, closed recently. Yes, and he bought did. it. And he's now moving his restaurant there. So there'll be another great five-star level dining experience over on <coughs> the east side. So that it should be that should be awesome. Much bigger space for him to do his stuff. So. You should check that out for sure. Yeah, sorry about that cough, but Rue de l'Espoir is another Hammerman family staple, <laughs> and we were very sad that it closed, so it'll be nice to um, have something new open up there. And if you want to see where Aaron Hernandez 
threatened a Jets fan and tried to kill him, you can go on Thayer Street and go to Viva, because that's where he was. (laughs) And they actually have a restaurant in the back called Paragon, which is also really good. The best meat food ever had, kebab and curry. We can go on about Providence for ages. It's the great city. I recommend visiting it. I recommend living there if you really want to. It's a cool place. But anyway, this has gone on for a very long time. For good reason. We had a lot to talk about. It has been really, really great. Uh, Rumford Johnny, thanks so much for joining me on this podcast. Thanks for for uh, basically laboring through your your cold. I know I've got I've got mine. I've had mine now for like uh, like luggage now for like three weeks. So I hope yours doesn't last as long. Hopefully you get over it quickly. Yeah, well, this was definitely. I like to think that every episode is better than all the episodes before, and this definitely I think was our strongest episode to date. That's it for the Hammer Time podcast. Please download us on iTunes. Please rate us on iTunes. Please listen to us on Planetary Mentality, on SoundCloud, wherever you may find us. Feel free to hit me up at Ethan Ham for any thoughts. We'll see you next week.